We're reading from John 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus said to him, sorry, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he said to the he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. First impressions always count. Now, you don't have to tell that to a CEO. So there are loads of CEOs of different companies, a chief executive officer. Here's a couple on the screen. When it comes to launching a new product, in particular, I'm thinking of technology. There's a few examples up here. There's Tim Cook, <laughs> who's being eaten, ironically, by a very large apple that's behind him on the screen. Um, and there's the CEO of uh, Huawei as well. That there's a certain importance because first impressions always last. So there is uh, a screen test for a tie if you wear one these days, which you rarely do. There's, there's a screen test and a, a carefully crafted speech that's delivered about the, uh, the opportunity you have to get rid of lots of your own hard-earned money to, to get a gadget that will make your life more controlled. But it's in your best interest and certainly in the interest of the company. I do have an opinion on it, as you can tell. But uh, the normal clothes that is worn is uh, smart casual. It gets more casual as you get nearer to the ground. So you wear uh, sneakers or trainers on the floor so you look in touch with the younger generation. And as you go up your body, you wear slightly smarter clothes so that a more mature generation thinks you're respectable and can be trusted. Because first impressions always count. First impressions count because they convey uh, what you're serious about. They convey something about your persona and demeanor. So as you look down to chapter 2, verse 11, as Chris pointed us to very helpfully, you see that Jesus, who John is so passionate to reveal, has done something very, very significant. It's the miracle of turning water into wine that's used at more weddings than uh, I care to count. But it's not just a flex. There's a word called flex that's entered into modern parlance, especially with a younger generation. Well, you just, it, 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 I believe, I'm told, rather than looking at me, but flex is something to do with muscular strength and prowess. So you prove how strong you are, how great you are, how dominant your physique is by flexing. And then someone else cowers into insignificance at your uh, masculine or feminine strength or grandeur. Jesus is not doing a miracle flex here. He's not skywriting in the, in the sky. He's not jumping from a tall building. He's doing something, chapter 2, verse 11, very deep and very profound. This, the first of his miraculous signs, 
Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. It's there. uh, There are seven different people who've studied the gospel of John, have put together the seven signs of John in slightly different ways. I find this way very helpful and very persuasive that we'll see this slide in the coming weeks and months, years perhaps even. But the purpose that Chris rightly pointed to is as Jesus reveals the glory of the Father is so that people would believe and trust in him through faith in the Son. So Jesus chooses not to feed the poor first. He chooses not to uh, raise someone from the dead, first of all. The first thing he chooses to do, because first impressions count and matter, is to reveal his priority to bring in the kingdom of God that is saturated with kingdom, God-centered joy. Not an emotion, but joy. (laughs) It's to keep a party going. He cares about people. He has power to deal with shame and sin. And so he doesn't heal the sick or raise the dead. First of all, he says, I want to show you I'm bringing a new kingdom that my father is serious about joy. So here's here's a couple of questions we're going to consider this morning. What do the jars point to? That's verse 6. What what is it about this exchange with his mum that looks very disrespectful? That's verse 3, verse 4. And what does this mean for us? That's our roadmap. So the jars, the exchange with mum, Mary, what does it mean to us? We're going to look at it a slightly different way since it's familiar territory. What do the jars point to? Verse 3 and 4 on the third day, rather verse 1 on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples were also there. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine, down to verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, verse 7, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and it was wine. Now what's going on here? Weddings are a big deal. Anyone that has the privilege of seeing a son or a daughter married and they have the ability to pay some of the resources that need, uh, and they're considerable behind a wedding day in the modern world, they know it's a joy, but they know that it's a it's big cost. It's significant. It's a joy, but there's a hit to the pocket. Now, they're big business now, whether you hire out High Clare Castle, because you have an inner Downton Abbey uh, fantasy that wants to be lived out, or whether you do something in the church hall downstairs, or whether you hire the Working Men's Club, whatever it is, whatever you can do, according to a budget, it's a big deal. It's important. It's big now. It was even bigger then. Weddings in the ancient Near East, where they were a regional affair, a wedding of this sort. You get a hint of it in verse 1 and and verse 2, where Jesus and his disciples, it's a growing number, are invited to this regional celebration. If it's a big deal now, it was even bigger then. Something that would happen once, maybe twice a year. And when I say regional, it's something that the entire region would have been invited to. Now, when that happens, you get some sense of the significance of the problem that is happening at this wedding. You've got to keep in mind, this isn't life or death, but verse 3, for them to run out of wine is shame. It's shock. To say it's a miscalculation is an understatement. 
It's a big deal. It's bringing reflected dishonoring on the couple and for sure on their family. And Jesus knows that it's in his power to rescue them. And so he chooses to make, verse 6, these huge ceremonial pots, clay pots for washing, for cleansing, into the best quality wine. This is out of the top drawer. This is something that if you tasted, you would be satisfied and your heart would be filled with joy. And I'm sure you'd be saying, please can I have another one? At least I would. The ceremonial jars are there representing the old way of doing things. They're there as, a, as an overhang of the current modus operandi of people getting right with God. Our sins need to be dealt with. And they point forward to something by kingdom prophetic promise that God would yet do through the messianic king that he would send. And John, even from the first sentence, is whispering, his name is Jesus. So there's huge significance in taking this uh, contraption that was used in the Jewish sacrificial system where there was blood sacrifices offering and there was grain offering and there was water that was used symbolically to cleanse your hands as you approach the holy presence of Almighty God. And Jesus says, I'm going to take something that represents all of the old system and I'm going to do something that gives your heart new and lasting joy. Huge symbolism here. As he fills these jars with wine, the best quality wine when they were water. I've come to bring in a new reality. I've come where there's this huge dissonance, this huge shame, this huge problem, this huge enmity between um, a culture looking on, wanting to be satisfied, but there's no more joy to be had because wine was significant and symbolic, saying it's about joy. And even in this wedding situation, there's a great picture against the whole of the backdrop of the Bible that says creation that is old is meeting creation that is new. The new will swallow up the old in victory. I've come to bring a new reality. The sacrificial offering, the ceremonial cleansing. It only pointed to a new permanent reality. And I and I alone will bring atonement and cleansing for sin. So as you come this morning, whatever guilt you carry, whatever stain is on your heart, whatever damn spot there is on your conscience, to quote Macbeth, Jesus and Jesus alone has authority to remove your sin like nothing else can and no one else can. I can cleanse it. That's what I've come to do. That's just the tip of the iceberg. That's the first thing we learn, and that's just from verse 6. What about the pots? Well, what about this exchange with his mum? Now, if this was my son speaking to my wife, as I say, there would be words had. Look at verse 3 and 4. Very interesting exchange, to put it lightly. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they've no more wine. Woman, we don't know how that word, it literally says, lady, why do you involve me? This is extraordinary. It looks on surface level that Jesus has turned up the sass volume. He's forgotten who he's talking to. He's speaking to Mary, his mum, who knows and has viewed from the early chapters of Matthew and Luke something of the divinity of her son. She's trying to put it together, trying to be uh, a godly woman from the very beginning of the pregnancy. 
But why is Jesus speaking so harshly on first appearances and so starkly? Why do you involve me? Verse 4. My hour has not yet come. Now this word hour, we've thought about this before, but just as a reminder, this is hugely significant in the Gospel of John. Were you to look at John 12, John 13, John 17, it's always speaking, uh, Jesus speaks about it and John records it in the vicinity, when the discussion and the significance of the cross of Christ. The hour is descriptive of the cross of Jesus. So Jesus, as he's asked and presented with this problem about wine, has something deep and f- profound processing in his spirit. He's thinking about his death. Mary, the mum, comes to her son and says they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, my translation, mum, I'm not ready to die yet. Now that's called a non sequitur. You know, did, did, did you miss here? Mary would say, come again. I spoke about wine. Jesus says, I'm not ready to die yet. He's processing what's happening in this key problem, in this regional feast at a very different level. He's clearly stirred deeply its profoundest depths because Jesus alone sees, sees what will happen. He sees what's happening to the bridegroom. He sees what's happening and unfolding before him. And he sees before him a metaphor of the very reason he came and the very thing he came to deal with. Now why does a wedding feast make him process and think about his death? Well look, the picture on the screen here, if you would go to a wedding, remember the, la- the last one you go to, there's always a little bit of a, a faraway look from some people who are there. There's some really funny photos of people catching bouquets on the internet involving sharp elbows of ladies. <laughs> but there is literally a bun fight on a few photos that I wanted to save, but they might take away from the seriousness of the subject as I've just done. But um, there's sometimes a faraway look of people whose marriages have ended and they look back to a happy day. Sometimes there's a faraway look from, from a, a single man or a single woman uh, who long to be married and they look with, with a tear in their eye to say, will that ever be my day? What happened to the happiness that I enjoyed that now I just remember sadness? There's a faraway look because if you're single at a wedding reception, it's a hard place to be. It's a lonely place to be. But hang on, you're not saying that Jesus had a wedding day. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying. The Bible speaks the whole of human history. The cosmic reality is that the very thing that was on Jesus' heart and mind at this point, woman, why are you troubling me, is his own wedding. That's what he's processing here. He was on his mind and on his heart all the time. He was soaked like a sponge with all the promises of the Old Testament. And that's recorded in the New Testament in its fulfillment. Constantly in the Old Testament, you read of Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 is one example of hundreds. He is the king of the cosmos. Every knee will bow and see the beauty and magnificence of King Jesus. And it's a repeated theme of the king and the earth as its its subjects. But that's not all. It's also this lovely truth. The book of Hosea is saturated with this image. Isaiah, the middle portion Uh, 25 and following, 40 to 55 and onwards is saturated with the fact that the Lord Omnipotent will provide for himself through the work of his Son, dependent on the Holy Spirit, a bride. 
a people for himself that he'll win and cleanse with his own blood. And then at the end of the Bible, in John's uh, second book, as it were, Revelation, at the very end, Revelation chapter 21, there's a picture of a, a union, a cosmic union between the blood-bought people and the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. So Mary says, there's no more wine. The wedding's in problem. There's this huge need. It's going to come to an abysmal and sad end. Jesus, can you do anything about it? And he says, I have a heart to bring joy with a depth and a reality. As I think of my own wedding past uh, context, Isaiah 25 and following and future as well. I'm going to give you more joy than you've ever had because joy is in short supply right now at uh, Cana. And joy is in short supply in the 21st century as well, is it not? I remember watching a film some while back. I, I watch any film that involves Denzel Washington. There's a little shout out to him. He's a superb actor. Matthew Broderick, there's a few others as well. Here's the film. This film is called Glory. You should uh, watch it just because it's got a great name. It's a historic film based on the American Civil War, and it's black and white fighting together. It's letters from a young officer to his father. And the black officers live uh, as if they are willing for the honor of their tribe and people group to lay their lives down, no matter what the cost. That's their priority. It's not about skin color, but it comes across that the black men are willing to die for the honor of their people. And the white officer, played by Broderick, is willing to die for a slightly different reason, but for the truth of his principles. Honor, glory, principles. The most important thing is honor, not joy. The most important thing is honor, not joy. It's just a film that I watched. Joy is a big thing today, and it's in very short supply. And whatever we pursue seems to run and drip through our fingers. The wine always runs out. That's the story of a film. But there's a story of a newspaper I read a couple of weeks back. There, there was a couple who were married. The husband had a terrible accident and was bound to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. After a couple of years of caring for her husband, the wife left her husband for another man. Her husband committed suicide. He couldn't bear living without her and couldn't bear life living in a wheelchair any longer. The lady shared a testimony in the story saying this. If for some reason you're trying to make me feel guilty for leaving my husband, it won't work. I refuse to feel guilty. I had my chance and I took it. Everyone has a right to happiness. It's not the end of the story, but it's very, very sad. Joy, personal happiness, that is the ether of our culture, is it not? No matter what it takes, no matter what it costs, you have a right for joy and happiness. C.S. Lewis knew this in 1940s when he gave a series of superb audio addresses that have been written up in many different forms. He says this, if I find within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the only probable explanation is that I was made for something in another world. There's a joy shortage. The wine always runs out. And Jesus decides to hear the cry from his mum, thinking of his own wedding, thinking of his own death. My hour has not yet come. 
and says, I and I alone am the only solution to the joy shortage in this situation. But as he does that, he's also painting a picture for all of us to gaze upon and say, I'm also the only one who can bring you everlasting joy. It's not just about the wedding in Cana in Galilee. And so he introduces himself to the world. And in case we think Christianity is just about getting an A-level in guilt, to quote Billy Connolly, he says, no, I've come to bring joy. And I'm going to prove it by creating from ceremonial hand-washing water the best wine. And here's a hundred gallons. I'm not going to make ten. I'm going to make a hundred. I'm going to make a massive amount because I'm about bringing serious, everlasting joy. I'm the Lord of the feast. That's what we, as we look back to the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 25. There is an eternal feast of joy with Jesus Christ as the host. Isaiah 25 says this, on the last day, we're going to be brought into a feast full of good things. There's going to be rich food. Do I hear an amen? There's going to be a banquet of aged wine. Amen. There's going to be the best of meats and finest of wines. And God will wipe away every single tear from the eye. And he's going to have destroyed the shroud of death. We will feel at that feast the way the bride feels at this feast. There's the wedding supper, Revelation 21. There's going to be a wedding. It's for every Christian. They will be dressed in beauty, not their own. It's the beauty of King Jesus. And he will say, blessed is he who's invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. He invites everyone, everyone. And he gives the best invitation that we can ever receive in the name of his son. On that day, on that future day, the eternal feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, all this strange imagery that there is in the Bible that's foreign to us, but we need to learn and engage with. On that day, all of us that have learned to love Jesus, to see his beauty by faith in the distance, in the far country, will see his beauty by sight. What a precious day that will be. We'll fall into his arms, to use modern language. The long-awaited union coming together and it will be the best of feasts. And it will be a joy that ends all joys. And it will go on forever. And I can't wait. The history of the universe is going to be a climax of a wedding day. So you should be saying, well, if that's true, why is he so sad? Why is Jesus so sad? Verse 4, here's Mary, his mum. Please bring joy to this wedding feast. And in his heart, he says, oh, mum. Oh, Mary. Woman, the only way, the only way that they can sip, that we can sip that great cup of joy in that day is if he takes and drinks the dre to the dregs from another cup. At the end of John's Gospel, there are another two cups mentioned. They're not made from glass. None of them would be in that time. But Jesus speaks of a figurative cup when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says... There is a cup that I need to drink. Father, is there any way for me not to drink this cup? But not what my will is, but what your will is. And it's the cup that is symbolic, that signifies all the righteous, appropriate, measured uh, anger, the wrath of God against the sin in the world. And he says, I'm going to drink it to its very dregs. And because I will... You can sip from the cup of joy. Then there's another cup just a few chapters before when Jesus is, is bringing in communion. 
he uh, lifts up the cup and says, this is the cup of my blood. It's a literal cup, not a figurative one. I won't drink it again until I drink it with you in the kingdom. See the irony of John chapter 2? Jesus is sitting there. The party's going on. The whole region's there. He's been told as a heads up, there's a great need here. They're all sipping joy. They're partying. The music's still going, but there's a problem. And Jesus is processing this deep reality. They're all sipping joy. And he's sipping sorrow. Because Jesus knows the cross is casting a shadow on his life. And this wedding coming together is a picture of heaven and earth coming together in the great historical plan of God. We will experience agony in this life. And Jesus was experiencing agony in his life. But he experienced the ultimate agony so that we might experience everlasting joy. Now that leads us to our third question. So what? So what? That was a long point. This one's shorter. Rest at ease. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us? Let's try and ground and land some of these great principles. Here are three. Three things, three takeaways, three applications, if I may. Here they are. Wine (coughs) is symbolic of joy. I might need to remind you of that. I might not, but biblically... Wine is serious, but it's serious about joy and happiness. Any wine except this wine of Jesus Christ will always run out. So let's be direct. In your heart of hearts, to the degree that you know yourself, what brings you joy in this life? What right now in your life are you living for? Are you banking on that? Are you hoping will bring you soul-satisfying joy. What is that? Is it a relationship? Is it a career path? Is it something to do with your own look? Is it a cause that you want to live for? And if I live for that, that I will know satisfaction and joy and lasting happiness. What's the joy in your life? What's the real joy that you think will it just promises contentment something will come in says the bible says the book of ecclesiastes and it will always be ruined thanks a lot i'm just giving you a reality check it's not me it's what the bible says if you live if you set your heart's affections if you put all your energies and efforts into living for something anything in this world that you live for at the expense of everything else Because you hope it will bring you joy, it won't. It will run out. The joy will end. The career will end in tatters. A loved one will depart. Something will not satisfy your heart. It does not matter how savvy you are, how intelligent you are, how beautiful you are. I want you to recognize that the deepest longing of our hearts says, King Jesus, the author of life, the maker and sustainer of creation, The only thing that will satisfy your heart at a deep level, says Jesus, is himself. That's the only thing that will keep you from putting too much weight and hope and anger on anything when it begins to crumble. Anything but joy in Jesus, only Jesus will satisfy. All wine will run out apart from the wine that Jesus offers. Here's number two. 
do whatever he tells you. Isn't it interesting that Mary, who processes at a very deep level from the moment she's conceived, or, or, or the moment she's carrying Jesus, excuse me, is pretty uh, striking how she addresses the servants. Jesus gives this really blank answer. What do you want with me, woman? Why are you troubling me? But she doesn't go into her shell. She says, you need to do whatever he tells you to do. Mary knew that her son was special. She heard the angel. She had an angel appear to her. Pretty special. Whatever she knew, she knew something about the greatness of her son. And she knew enough of his greatness not to be upset, not to take humbrage. But she said, go and talk to him. Do whatever he says, verse 5. She could have said, how dare you speak to me like that? Wait till I tell your dad. I'm your mother. How dare you speak to me like that? What she said is this, verse 5. See that guy over there? You need to do whatever he tells you to do. Sometimes he acts in a strange way. Sometimes he says things that nobody understands. And even me, from the moment I was carrying him, I've been trying to put it together. But you know what? My son always knows what he's doing, even when you can't see it. There are a lot of things in life that I don't understand, that you don't understand. There's a lot of things that Jesus says and God calls us to that are confusing. But you know what? We need to listen to Mary, who says, listen to Jesus, do whatever he says. It won't always make sense. But if he is who he says he is, that everything he says and does won't always make sense to you. Imagine there's a five-year-old and they're talking to a 35-year-old mum or dad. Kid talking to a parent. Can you explain to me why this is happening? Well, this is why it's happening. Can you, can you explain to me why uh, the gas, you know, when, when I hear that click in my bedroom, that the, the house gets warmer after a while? How does that work? Well, there's a pilot light inside and there's gas source that comes from the outside. The five-year-old just glazes over. It's just too big conceptually to understand. You're five. I can't explain it to you. You're just going to have to trust me and do what I tell you. Isn't that the same with God? Sometimes there are things in our lives that we don't understand. At that point, we need to look at his character and to trust him. Verse five, do whatever he tells you to do because he can be trusted. Last of all, this is a kind of a long title went all Puritan. Learn how to draw on your knowledge of what's coming in the future to help you deal with the troubles of the past, or the present rather. <laughs> There's a man called Edmund Clowney. He was a preacher and teacher. And he once says something like this. He's preaching on this text at this wedding in Cana, in Galilee. He said, quote, Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow. So today we can sit amidst all the world's sorrows, sipping the coming joy in the midst of all that joy why was he saying woman our death in the midst of all that joy he was in a sense jesus sipping or foretasting the sorrow to come so that we can sit in the midst of all our sorrows and we can sip the coming joy